0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together some of the best known former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most pressing legal topics of the day, including the Mueller probe and related investigations. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General, and also Assistant United States Attorney or Line Prosecutor. We are here in Washington, DC with three very experienced and knowledgeable and charming former Department of Justice officials, Elliot Williams, Julie Zebreck, and Ellie Honig. Elliot was formerly a Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs at the Justice Department. He is now a principal at the Rabin Group, a national public affairs firm based in Washington. But you had other jobs in government as well, Elliot, didn't you? you?
1: Are, yeah, I was a trial attorney at the Justice Department, and I was head of legislative affairs at ICE, and also worked for the Senate Judiciary. I just work for government, basically. <laughs> I just, right, but I also worked for the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Schumer for a while. How long were you a line prosecutor? Two and a half years as a line prosecutor, and then uh, another three and a half at Maine Justice at the end of the administration. That would be Obama, Obama, Obama yes. administration. Okay.
0: Julie Zebrak, uh, who you can find at Twitter at, at YesMomsCan. Yep. Uh, served in the Department of Justice for some 18 years in many roles, including Deputy Chief of Staff to the Deputy Attorney General also agency counsel for the criminal division. From 2015 to 16, she worked especially in the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and that was at DOJ or another That's agency? That's at
2: FinCEN, which is part of Treasury.
0: What does FinCEN stand for?
2: Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Um, FinCEN has become a, a hot new agency under the Trump administration because they go after money laundering and they're providing information to the special counsel's office or any members of the FBI who are requesting information regarding suspicious activity reports or other financial intelligence.
0: So, the, got it. So, the new terrorist strategy of follow the money. That's anchored in FinCEN, is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, L.A. Honig, he's served as director of the Department of Law and Public Safety in the New Jersey Division of Criminal Justice. But before that, he worked for many years in a sleepy U.S. attorney's office on the East Coast
3: Where where, where were you working? We were at a a small office called the Southern District of New York. We have no self-regard. The Southern District of New York. And tell us a little bit about your work there. I spent eight and a half years there, uh, did the usual sort of rotations through the junior units, and then ended up doing my last six years in organized crime and co-chief of organized crime. So mafia and uh, any other type of organized crime you can think of.
0: And how do you feel everything's going in the SDNY? Are you guys kind of Coming back, be- coming back up to a to a kind of professional respectability, would
3: you say? <laughs> They're rolling along. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, I think they got big things ahead.
0: All right, we have. Well, we know they have big things ahead, or they've got big things in the hopper, and we'll be talking some about them. We're gonna we're gonna discuss two topics uh, today, starting with uh, activity in New York prosecutor's office uh, yesterday, but not the SDNY, rather the New York. Da Down the street, literally, is the district attorney for Manhattan, or the city of New York, I should say, Cy Vance Jr. And some 50 minutes after Paul Manafort was sentenced by Judge Amy Berman Jackson, Vance came out and announced charges in the state system that somewhat, but not completely, paralleled the charges to which he... Had been uh, found, a judge guilty in the Eastern District of Virginia before the case before Judge Ellis. So that was a very interesting development, potentially a game changer. And I want to start us out by uh, asking what's the import both for Manafort, but just for the overall dynamic of the whole probe of the entry into the field of a state prosecutor. Uh, bringing charges against a member of Trump's inner circle who may potentially have been angling for a pardon strategy. And just to completely set the table, the president's pardon power is very broad, but doesn't, of course, reach the ability to pardon state crimes. So, Ellie, let's start with you and ask, in general, what you see as either the, the takeaway or the basic change in dynamic that the DA charges
3: work. So it's clear people are now playing the part in game, right? You saw, first of all, you saw Manafort's lawyer, Downing, come out of the hearing yesterday and boldly and baldly mischaracterize what the judge had said and put out this garbage of, look, no collusion. Once again, no collusion was found, which the president picked up on about a half hour later. And the
0: judge had specifically remonstrated him for in court.
3: It was outrageous, really. The judge went out of her way. She didn't want to have her words twisted the same way Judge Ellis's words were twisted Uh, the prior week. So start with that. Now, this move by Cy Vance, I think, is obviously intended to be a counter move because the president cannot pardon a state crime. But I am not at all a fan of this move by Cy Vance. I I don't like it. It doesn't sit well with me as a prosecutor for a couple reasons. First of all, it's serial prosecution with the S kind of serial, (laughs) S-E-R-I-A-L. Just, (laughs) I don't know how he would do the other kind of serial prosecution, but it's the kind of, it's just the one after the other after the other. He didn't even wait an hour until Manafort's sentencing was over. Did you see that as pointed on his part? Pointed in a bad way. And that gets me to my second point was, it's nakedly political. It's overtly political by Cy Vance. You are not supposed to sit there as a prosecutor and test the political waters and decide, do I I like this defendant or not like this defendant? Do I like this defendant's benefactors? Do I not like this defendant's benefactors? And I don't see any way around the conclusion that this was an overtly, political move by Cy Vance. I
2: have a question, though. So I'm not familiar with New York politics. Is this typical of Cy Vance?
3: I don't know what's typical of Cy Vance. He's been all over the map. Look, he took a lot of heat because there's been reporting after the fact that years ago he had a pretty clean-cut fraud case on the Trump children, Ivanka and one of the sons, and chose not to bring it. Now, it turns out he took campaign donations from their lawyers, which got him in a lot of trouble. Similar fact pattern with Harvey Weinstein. Then later on, when he took too much heat, he decided to... uh, Take another look at that case. So I don't know what Sy Vance's exact agenda is here, but he seems to be, along with the New York Attorney General, on this me too, I want to be part of this I attack
1: Trump train. So Ellie, what's weird saying the name Ellie with having the name Elliot, uh which we, gotta is work out. we gotta work this out. But but you know, the interesting thing about when prosecutors are seen to have politicized something. Even the appearance of politics is problematic. Now, we saw this with the recusal questions that came up at the beginning of the Miller inquiry and so on, where even if you don't have a political problem, looking like you have a political problem as a prosecutor is a problem. And it, it, it just smells fishy. Now, two things can equally be true, right? They might be righteous charges that a grand jury could support that, you know, that you could convict an individual on and so on and the prosecutors behaving in a political or media savvy kind of way. And I just think the fact that it looks so fishy just isn't good for, and particularly given how political this climate is, the president has already attacked uh, other prosecutors and will certainly go after Vance in New York and the liberals in New York or who are part of a deep state conspiracy that's now, um, you know, filtered down to the States, but it doesn't help to have dropped the charges minutes after because it was clearly deliberate. So uh, regardless of what we think about it, it's just, it, it's it just looks bad.
0: Well, let me push back a little bit on that, and and I understand the point that it was done immediately after, and there was a PR side to it. But look, what's wrong with a prosecutor's concluding that overall justice wasn't done in a neighbor sovereign, and taking that into account in deciding whether to bring charges? Isn't that what the Civil Rights Division and the Department of Justice does? every day when they when they decide whether to come and bring charges following a state acquittal say in a in a police brutality case the Rodney King case say that i worked on they're asking whether there was a demonstrable failure of justice in the state system now you can call that political in the sense that it's conscious of the overall sentence that was meted out to Manafort. But why is it improper for Vance to say the thing that the Civil Rights Division says, hey, so far, justice hasn't been done moreover. There's this real sort of Damocles hanging over us that that he could be pardoned and, and skate away totally. I'm going to, to step in and give an insurance policy here the way the feds do in the civil rights area.
2: I mean, one of the things that I noticed um, just on social media and hearing from folks respond outside of the legal world is how pleased they were with the charges coming out of the New York DA's office. And I think that part of the appeal of the way it slid in, and this would only, you know, this is from a lay perspective that I'm getting feedback, but part of the appeal is that we're not seeing folks um, getting off scot free and we're seeing that there is. So much more that we haven't heard and that it it appears that folks don't want to to the extent that they are disappointed in the sentence coming out from both um, EDVA and the D.C. uh, court that it sort of satisfies this public need to see more going on.
0: Okay, now, but is that public need somehow illegitimate? And I take the general point. You wouldn't want the bedlam of every state suing everyone back and forth. But why should Vance, why is it, quote unquote, political in a bad way for Vance to take account of what happened already? i
1: I'm going to push back on your pushback. Harry. It's it. like meta pushback. But no, it's not that the charges themselves are problematic. It is unlawful conduct that could be sustained by a grand jury and maybe be sustained by an actual jury if it, if it reaches that point. It's the fact that minutes after the guy was sentenced in the federal court, they dropped the charges to have the biggest um, political or or PR splash okay. because look in the universe of moments at which they could have dropped these charges, why did they choose to piggyback on his other sentencing? And certainly, it just looks more political. All right, we, so we can't beef, deny that
0: your beef is just is the PR aspect of it. Is that is that
1: right? It all fits together, right? So inherently, well, does it? Is your beef the charges? I think or all, all the, the above. Way? I think well, no, well, no, no, let's no, no, no. no. No, charges. no, no. I know. I, the charges would have would have been sustained either way. But you can't tell me that in a political process, which this is. They're not behaving as as nakedly political actors.
0: Well, I'm positing, in fact, the charges would not have been brought in a vacuum, but for the suspicion or concern of the New York DA that otherwise full justice wouldn't have been done. I've looked into it and it's a complicated area more than I I expected at first. It would have been pretty sewn up by the New York DA. In fact, I think a number of the charges, maybe even the main ones are going to have real double jeopardy There'll be a real uh, uh, fight, and that'll take place right off the bat before the actual uh, trial begins to unfold. But there are at least one or two that ought to stand up. The the sort of financial uh, statements or lies on the financial forums, I think, will probably Hold, but the double jeopardy issue is tricky. Not under the Constitution. The Constitution and uh, actually permits New York and the federal system to bring parallel charges, but New York law itself limits it, and it looks like there will be some shadow cast here. Okay, let's. Uh, we we need to wrap this one up. So let's just go around the horn and give your sort of final or bottom line thoughts on this issue?
1: This is not the end of the uh, liability that Manafort could face around the country. He could face banking and tax charges in Virginia, Illinois, and California. So this is the start of his state legal woes. I actually think this was a shot across the bow to the president of the United States and everyone that the states are going to get involved in these things that we thought of as just the domain of the special counsel, that, that they, you know, they're outside of the pardon power. They're outside of this question of whether the DOJ can indict a sitting president or whatever. And I think this was a very public step in that sense.
2: I agree. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay that it was a shot across the bow. And what I want to see is what they find out, what digging they can do, what kind of discovery and what they're able to come up with, because it may lead to other issues that can take us down the road.
3: So when I was with the Southern District of New York, I had the distinct honor of doing the fourth John Gotti Jr. trial, the fourth, and that jury hung, and we, we talked to the jury afterwards, and they basically said the ones who who didn't want to convict said enough's enough, like four times, and we talked to the judge afterwards, who was pro us, pro government, and he said the same thing. And I look, I have zero sympathy for Paul Manafort. I think he got off light. I think both judges came in under what they should have sentenced him to. But uh, enough's enough at a certain point. The guy's been through two full cases. How much more do we need to pile on this person? And I think we have to honestly ask ourselves whether there's some political feeling behind that.
0: And he does certainly seem like a completely demolished and brought low individual with his, you know, gout and non-toupee and his... uh and, and wheeling. Listen guys, guys
1: need their hair. Hair dye in prison is a big issue. I know we're, we're almost at it. Look, I just want to get out of this framework of feeling sorry for white collar defendants. And it's this, you know, this, there's this whole, Oh, I suffer so much on account of my status in society. And that's a lot of what we heard here. It's what we heard in Cohen and we allow it because it's white collar defendants that, you know, I am humiliated where the words are used. And I just, that framing, I understand he's 69 years old, but like, All right. All right.
0: right. Fair fair enough. But I want to say this uh, discussion has actually influenced me and and both in Elliot and Elliot's point. But I'm I'm basically with Julie here. That is, I think that um, (laughs) this is a game changer in a in a righteous way. There was there's something deeply galling about the overall attack on the rule of law in general from the Trump administration, but this this final card, it's as if he had this counter move to nullify everything, yes, as a matter of executive power, but given the way he's it, exploited it, it's it feels righteous, certainly, but I think also appropriate that there's another voice to say, you know, not so fast, we're here because, in particular, you're threatening a unlawful and abuse of the pardon power, and there's a final response, unexpected, uh, that the system has to which you have no necessary countermove. Anyway, I see both points and. Uh, it's, it'll be very interesting how it plays out, not just legally, but politically, if there'll be that kind of blowback in the next few weeks and months. It's time once again for our palate-cleansing segment we call Sidebar. Today, magician, actor, and author Penn Gillette explains the sometimes misunderstood distinction between two tools prosecutors have at their disposal to obtain information, the subpoena
4: and the search warrant. When federal prosecutors are investigating a potential crime, there are two primary ways that they can force someone to give them information. First, prosecutors may use grand jury subpoenas. These subpoenas require the recipients to give the grand jury testimony or documents. A prosecutor may subpoena non-privileged information with no judicial approval so long as there is a reasonable possibility that that category of material will produce information relevant to the general subject of the grand jury's investigation. If a party objects to the subpoena, he or she can go before a judge and ask to have the subpoena ruled improper or quashed. Subpoenas are often quashed if they seek privileged information, but rarely because the information they seek is not relevant. Prosecutors also utilize search warrants when they want to search for and seize particular pieces of evidence from a target. A search warrant is usually issued by a magistrate judge. Because the target has no opportunity to object until after the search and seizure, the standards for obtaining a search warrant are higher than for a subpoena. An application for a warrant must identify the particular person or property to be searched and seized and must provide probable cause to believe that the objects that may be lawfully seized will be found in the identified location. If someone is subject to an improper search and seizure, he or she may challenge it after the fact, either by seeking to have the evidence excluded from the prosecution or by filing a suit against the government for damages or return of the property. This is Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller.
0: Thanks very much, Penn Jillette. So in brief, a subpoena doesn't require any special judicial process, but a search warrant does. Okay, on to our second topic. We got word that uh, CNN had in its possession emails sent to Michael Cohen from a lawyer who supposedly was sending them on behalf of Rudy Giuliani that seemed to augur a promise or a possibility of a pardon from the president. I'd like to approach this in kind of a prosecutorial mindset. That is, this evidence comes in the door, or you now know that it is in the world. And and let me just summarize it. Uh, There were a couple emails sent last April, and the first one had this lawyer Robert Costello, who supposedly, but as this comes to you, you don't know that, worked with Rudy Giuliani saying that Cohen could, quote, sleep well tonight because he had, quote, friends in high places. And then there was a another email that was similarly reassuring that basically said, I just spoke to Rudy Giuliani He asked me to tell you that he knows how tough this is on you and your family, and he will make sure to tell the president. He said, thank you for opening this back channel of communication and asked me to keep in touch. And then yet another email, Costello tells Cohen he had spoken to Giuliani and told Cohen that it was, quote, very, very positive. So, okay, what do we have here? These are communications with lawyers? Does that mean they're protected? We don't know exactly that they go to Giuliani. We are just told this. Is it smoke or is it fire? What in general is your move if you're on the Hill or at DOJ to try to follow up on this particular evidence?
1: You got Costello. You've got Cohen. I guess you have Giuliani. Where's your first letter? I think Costello. Who is this guy? What is his proximity to the president? Why does he matter? Why is he trading information? Is he trading information or is it just a, you know, another wink wink joke? What you know, it could be a sarcastic. Does comment. he know Giuliani does at all? Does he know all? Giuliani at all? Again, like who is this guy? So I think that's one. So you start with a letter, you know, Congress has everything from letters, transcribed interviews, depositions, which is a term that lawyers know about. Then you start getting into the big boy stuff, the subpoenas, um, decision not to subpoena. You could have a hearing. Well, let me stop you at depositions. How would that work? In Congress, you're
0: going to notice a deposition of Costello. He's got to show up, raise his right hand,
1: and, and talk? Yeah, and either with members of Congress there or not with members of Congress there. It could be staff conducting the interview, but it's a deposition just like any other. And again, it's and like I said, there's fewer rules in Congress. They're not held to what you know. we as lawyers know of the federal rules of evidence. Like there are things you can say and can't say. There are things you can ask and can't ask. The interesting thing about congressional proceedings is that everything can be negotiated. So when Costello's lawyer gets the letter, he can say, I don't want to commit. In for a hearing, I don't. I, w- I will sit for a non-transcribed interview only with congressional staff, or I only want to be with members of Congress or I will come for a hearing, but it's off the record, or whatever. All of these things can be worked out beforehand, and there's more latitude that people have that litigants in, in federal proceedings don't.
0: All right, so meanwhile, back in the SDNY, how, how are you approaching this when this lands on your desk?
3: This is a tough one for a couple reasons. First of all, I agree with Elliot. The first, the first stop here is going to be this guy Costello, but I think he's made pretty clear He's not on board, right? He's already coming up with this story. I won't even call it a cover story because it's plausible. This story that those emails were not about a potential pardon, They were about Cohen was worried that Trump was angry with him after the search warrant on Cohen's property. And this was Costello just assuring, Cohen, don't worry. The big man's not mad at you. He still loves you.
0: Did you catch the uh, country music aspect of this, Julie? I did (laughs) not. Okay. So the story by Costello is when he said friends in high places. It was just a cunning reference. Cause Garth Brooks friends in low places. Obvious. I don't know why <laughs> the people New York lawyer are so. takes can, on
2: country music.
0: E- excuse. E- exactly. Confused. Great. It was just trying well, to look, reassure. Blame it on my the,
1: roots. I showed up in wingtips and ruined your, you know, business casual affair. Right? I guess. This is the beauty of
3: speaking in code. Right. And, and, It could be natural. Right. right? Like we were discussing before.
2: Right. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would say to a girlfriend. Don't worry about it. You know, just I know you're stressed. Let's not worry about it. We got friends in high places. That's plausible. I don't know. And and,
0: and you'd be saying what to your girlfriend then? that That the president has
1: your back? or just, just don't just worry about, chill about it. Out. just chill but out. I still think this is the, I just think it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I still think so. when someone is saying, don't worry about it to someone who might be facing federal charges with the president of the United States, who's willing to dangle pardons, you got to at least ask the question. All right. But so back to the prosecutorial mindset, what it, what it is or isn't,
0: uh, we can continue to discuss, but uh, ellie it's on your desk yeah what do you want from costello whom do you call right what about lawyer client aspects tell me how you spend your right. week after you get this email
3: so you have to go at costello first i want to know is costello really in communication with rudy giuliani or is he just sort of play acting here what's the relationship how, how do you, these guys you know find each other? It out? Who do you well have? you got to flip really there's only a couple ways you can flip costello you can flip rudy giuliani flip? what's flipping uh, cooperate. Convince him that it's in his best interest to cooperate. Now that's so. Your first step here. is to invite him in for a chat. You could either start by calling his lawyer, calling him and say, I'd like you to come in for a chat. Or if you want to sort of skip to the next level of seriousness, you can drop a subpoena on him. Now, the difficulty here is it's much easier to flip someone when you've got them cold and you don't have Costello cold. What do you mean by cold? Meaning if you had a a devastatingly incriminating recording or email or something like that. Here we have an email that I think is ambiguous. I think it's more likely they're talking about pardons. But who's to say? Maybe they are just using sort of friendly banter here. And the problem is you don't have something you can slide under Costello's nose and go you're screwed you need to f- cooperate you need to get in here and tell us the truth
2: right So here's, I mean, here's what I'm thinking. I'm listening to Elliot and I'm listening to Ellie and I'm thinking, isn't this going to take forever? I want to know now. Like when you talk about negotiating and you can have him come in for a deposition. No,
3: you can do things quick. You can do it quick? You can say, I need you in here by the end of the week. And if not, we'll subpoena you. And then you're expected in the grand jury on Tuesday. All right.
0: Is that right? You put him in the grand jury soon. What's your, that's my question. What is your contemplated Second move, depending on what he says. Tell us just a little bit about the early branches of the decision tree.
3: Well, then you're in then you're in talking grand jury, and then the counter move from Costello would be to take the fifth potentially. He's got two choices. He can testify or he can take the fifth, meaning he can say right against self-incrimination. Then the ball is back on your side of the tennis court as the prosecutor. And your decision is do I just accept the Fifth Amendment waiver and understand I'm not going to get his testimony? Or do you go seek immunity from you guys at
1: DOJ? All of this applies in congressional proceedings as well. The difference is you have a partisan uh, makeup of Congress, right? And so it's particularly in something like this that implicates the president. And as a political matter, uh, it might be a little more complicated um, to get everybody on board. So, for instance, a a vote on a subpoena has to be a vote of the whole committee. Now, you know, Democrats in the House have the majority, so they'd win and they get to authorize a subpoena. But, you know, there's still that political element to everything. That happens there. Most of the time, they can work this stuff out. But again, it's the same thing. People plead the fifth. The question is Does he do it in a meeting beforehand? Do you rely or do you just embarrass him and call him in front right. of the cameras and the Klieg lights? It's just same thing.
0: Why don't we use this as a sort of closeout question? Let's say you you learn from Costello yep, it's everything you think it is. I was communicating with Cohen to stay quiet. After This was just after the search. Stay calm, stay quiet. He's got friends in high places. That's how I, that's what I took Rudy Giuliani to mean that I should pass along to Cohen. What do things look like at that point for Rudy Giuliani? Starting, let's go around the horn on that, starting with Ellie. It's
3: very complicated because you're not going to flip Rudy Giuliani. And he's got attorney-client privileges up to the president. So isn't it a crime? It's not a crime fraud. Well, it could be a crime fraud. I mean, we, I guess we have to let, what, actually, let's step it back What's up. a crime fraud? Well, so crime fraud mean, normally conversations between an attorney and his client are privileged, meaning they're confidential. They can't, they, you don't have to talk about them publicly unless you're, you're talking about a crime, committing a crime together or furthering a crime together, then they're not privileged. So anything involving Rudy's conversations with Trump is extraordinarily difficult to get. It's complicated. Legally, um, and look, Rudy's not going to. I don't why think we'll ever turn him.
2: Why are we going to flip him?
3: Why are we going to?
0: flip him? Why are we
2: not? Are we not? Or if he, or if he doesn't Michael talk, Cohen?
0: why are we going to charge him? In other words, right. is he
3: looking at actual chargeable conduct for obstruction? This brings me to sort of like my fundamental question: Do we agree? Does everyone agree that dangling pardons in order to deter someone from cooperating is criminal obstruction, or just to get them to lie? Right. Um. All of the above. Right. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, Rudy's it, look, it's all about loyalty. And I, I look, I, w- I guess I want to say the same thing about Michael Cohen a year right. ago right now. That's but my point. Rudy is so dyed in the wool. He's such a true believer. And by the way, imagine making Rudy your star witness as a prosecutor. Now imagine we call to the stand Rudy Giuliani. I've called some bad boys. I've called some killers, actual killers. Rudy's not a killer, but boy, would that be complicated? Julie,
2: I got to say, I, I think everything's on the table. I really
1: do. I'm not convinced. I just, yeah, I'm the naysayer here. I, you just need more, um, and I just, I'm not convinced that because if you're talking about flipping Rudy Giuliani, you're talking about criminal Actually, conduct. Actually, I'm talking
0: about charging jo- Rudy. Well, Giuliani.
1: Fi- well, what's the? I mean, I, yeah, it's we're we're a little bit away from that. Again, it's an email between a couple jokers who are prone to exaggeration and lying. I, I'm just, I'm not there you,
3: yet. I totally agree. You would need a huge break. You would need this Costello guy to say. Okay, guys. Prosecutors, like this is what you think it is, and I'm ready right. to flip. Barring that, yeah, this is yeah. this well, is dead I, end. right.
2: And just to be clear, I think everything is on the table. I don't mean we're flipping Giuliani over this alone. I just think there's enough out there that we could find some
0: other things. You do keep waiting for state bar authorities to be actually, at, you know, knocking on Rudy Giuliani's door and those of uh, several lawyers. Yeah, yeah, Kevin Downing. Yeah. So I think we're out of time for this segment and for the episode, except for our final feature of Five Words or Less, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer it in five words or less. Our question today comes from Marie Brennan from a Twitter account who asks, which witness should the administration be most worried about? Let's start with you, Elliot.
3: Rona Graff.
2: Oh, stop. Rona Gra- Graff is the queen. You stole me.
3: <laughs> That's your answer, too? Yeah. Rona Graf, the secretary, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's wow. always the secretary. Well, so listen, we have five words, but that means I can get two people in here.
0: Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. It also means you're already hopelessly oh, you are, over. Do you, you want to answer you, the question? You or are not? a
3: fraud and you are cheating. <laughs> Count my words. Julian Assange and Don Jr. Harry. Mm. Graf, Weisselberg, Hicks, and Prince. Thank you
0: very much, Elliot, Julie, and Ellie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to our second episode of Talking Feds. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Podcast. Or Talking Feds Pod, whichever gets you there to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web at talkingfeds.com. And don't forget to submit any questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or less or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Joel Ollaker, Dave Moldovan, and Rebecca Jackson. Production assistance by Sarah Philipoom and Amanda Zoltan. Graphic design by Alexandra Holness. The incredible Philip Glass graciously let us use his music. Special thanks to Diane Sheamus, Steve Lichtag, and Andy and Holly Klubach. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.